This episode of Earl Grey is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. I'm Daniel Davis. I played Professor James Moriarty on Star Trek The Next Generation, and you're listening to Trek FM. Welcome to another cup of Earl Grey, Trek FM's dedicated podcast to the next generation. I'm your host, Justin Ozer. Amy is away this week, but join with me today is Joe Keegan. Joe, how are you doing today? Yeah, I'm good, Justin. Um, Amy's away again. She's still not back from that undercover mission that she was on last week. Well, I think we can reveal here she was at a, she's at a panel oh. at uh, fan, the Fanex convention in Salt Lake City. Well, we're not doing undercover missions this That's week, but lower cover. She's done the <laughs> panel now at Fanex, yeah. so we can reveal to our audience. And apparently it went quite well. Yeah, and uh, well, she was there with Haley Stoddard of Standard Orbit, Brandy uh, Jacola of Life from the Edge, and I think Zachary Fruling, who does Metatrex and To the Journey, was on that panel as well about diversity in Star Trek. So I think they recorded some audio, so hopefully we'll hear that coming yeah. up. But that's why Amy's away. We do have a special guest, but first, let's go through some of your Babel Conference feedback. This is for Earl Grey 288, where we talked about our favorite villains. Got some great feedback on that one. So, Joe, you want to read the first comment? I don't know if it's so great feedback, but we'll, <laughs> we'll go nonetheless. I saved the best for you for last, let's yeah. just say that. Thank you, Justin. So Greg Malumbi says, interesting selections. I don't agree with some of them in brackets Jellico, but it was a nice discussion. My three favorite villains. Tom Locke, how he wasn't even mentioned, I have no idea. Q, in the first few seasons, he was a villain. And Lore. You could have also said that the crystalline entity in terms of the nature versus nurture thing too when talking about Armis and Nagelum. Yeah, Greg, I agree with your um, favourite villain selections. Um, the thing about Star Trek is that there's no end of villains to choose from, so we could have done many podcasts and many talked about it for many hours. No idea why nobody else thinks that Jellico is not a villain. That's just all I'm <laughs> going to say. You did, you did get a lot of people saying Jellico a villain. We'll see more about that. But but like Greg, I think those are some interesting selections. I totally agree about about Lore. I think he is a really great villain. Q, I I don't know. I'm not so sure about because I think he does do some things that are that seem really harmful in the first few seasons, but. So maybe there is an argument more there, but he does end up helping things out or helping Picard and the Enterprise later on. So I guess I don't as much see him as as a villain. Now, Tomalak's an interesting one because he is definitely, you know, has the Romulan ship and he's uh, he is threatening the Enterprise and all of that. But I think that he's kind of doing what he's been taught to do. I don't think of him as a villain in the sense of like he's just like gone way off base and is just evil. 
I think for the most part, he's just doing what Romulan commanders do. But anyway, it's an interesting choices, Greg. Anytime I see Tomalok, I can't help but see Jakar from Babylon 5, played by Andreas Gatsoulis, mm-hmm. who's an amazing actor. Um, so yeah, I can't, I can't see Tomalok. I don't see a Romulan. I see Jakar. I see that now because I hadn't actually seen really much of Babylon 5 until recently, but I can, I can definitely see that. Yep. All right. So Kimberly Lawler says, well, this discussion went in some interesting directions. I'm a Jellicoe fan, so I didn't agree with him being a villain in any conventional sense. Sorry, Joe. It's okay. Uh, but definitely <laughs> agreed with the Madrid pick. The thing about Madrid was you got all the background and complexity, but ultimately you see he is really just a sadist who's torturing Picard just as a power play to break him personally. I think there is no way to justify the schism's alien's actions. This was a very X-Files-like episode with the alien abductions, and nope, cannot be justified. Cutting off a sentient being's arm and all the other stuff they did was pretty terrible. Amy Nelson, you forgot one other villain who killed a main main TNG cast member, at least temporarily, Alcar killing Troy. Such a hammy episode, but worth it for Beverly's solution to the problem and the sweet moment that Will and Deanna have at the end. So thanks, Kimberly. So... Yeah, a couple of things about your comments. Madrid, I think that is one of the things that makes him a villain. He's just kind of doing it to try to really torture Picard and maybe hasn't even been ordered to go that far. It becomes very personal. For the Schism's aliens, I agree that their actions are very bad (laughs) in what they do. But it is kind of interesting. I mention it, but there is a novel called Sight Unseen, which goes more into their society and they have different factions and things. So it, it makes it more interesting that way. Um, and for Alcar killing Troy, uh, that must be in, my God, Joe, why am I forgetting the episode? That's you know, no the idea. one where the guy has his psychic garbage that he's trying to, to give away to other people. I saw that comment and I was kind of stuck on, I was like, who on earth is Alcar? And I didn't, I didn't actually get around to Googling it. Um, Ves Alcar was a Lumerian representative. Man of the people, that's the one. Or was he on board with his family? Oh no, that was a different episode with telepathic. I th- yeah, I think you're thinking of thinking of a different one. But basically, he's he's like this this uh, diplomat, and he has all this like psychic waste or garbage that he gives to other people, and he has some assistant that like ages a lot. Sound familiar now? Oh yeah, and and Troy gets yeah. really, really, really old. Yeah, <laughs> yes, that one. So, but yes, Kimberly, she did get temporarily killed in that one. Yeah, Kimberly, Mid- the Madrid thing. Um, the discussions we had on Madrid really highlights how villainous he actually is. And I love the fact that you get all that background, how you meet his daughter, but then it just t- turns out he just wants to torture Picard and try and get whatever secrets he can get out of them. Still not convinced of the schisms aliens, though, because they're in another layer of subspace. Are they? Is, did we see them as um, like humanoid? Or is that just our brain's way of interpreting what subspace aliens look like? Hmm. It's a good question. Interesting. So, uh, Tim Robertson says, Great conversation, but Captain Jellico a villain? Time travel? I don't get that one at all. But the thing that really made me scratch my head was Amy Nelson's comment that the only thing wrong with Nemesis was that Shinson should have had hair. That's the only thing wrong with that movie. Thanks for your comment, Tim. Um, yes, Captain Jellicoe is definitively a villain <laughs> based on my definition at the beginning of the episode. If you want to go back and re-listen, um, his, my selection 
matches and I my think definition. many people would disagree with your definition, which was basically just that what that the things get changed up a lot. Is yeah, no, it, the, the, it makes the viewer somebody that makes the viewer feel uncomfortable with what's going on. Okay. So it's a loose definition, villain. Okay. I granted. Yeah, by your definition. So so Tim, very nice way of taking shots at all three of us. <laughs> Joe's selection of Captain Jellico as a villain, I'd mine like for the time way travel. That it wasn't just me. Yeah, and Amy Nelson for Shinzon. So uh equal opportunity insults to all of us. No, we love you, Tim. We really do. <laughs> we get the the spirit that you have it in, but uh it's yeah. It it's it's great that you listened, you had a reaction to it. Yeah. Love Tim, don't love his gnomes. I know we don't love his. You don't love his gnomes. I think True. gnomes are awesome. No. All right. So we have Stefan Ringlein who says, "Great episode, guys. Very good picks and interesting discussion on what makes a good, relatable, and believable villain." Justin, I liked your way of thinking outside the box with time travel, but I also liked Joe's response with space travel. <laughs> Laughed out loud, walking on the street. When Amy was about to unveil her villain Armis, I also thought she was going to say Shinzon. I agree with Joe to a certain extent that Jellicoe might be perceived as a villain watching the episode for the first time. The writers did a good job to irritate the audience with him and his character. Two of my favorite villains in TNG, there are so many good ones, are Kivas Fajo and Ardra. Outside of TNG, it would be Dukat because he starts slow but gets more layers each season. So thank you, uh, Stefan. Thank you, Stefan. Thank you. Yeah, and for supporting Joe, at least somewhat, in his selection of Jellicoe as a villain. At least I've got one ally. I think he was maybe the only one. And Kivas Fajo in The Most Toys is a great one. I think that's come up a couple times. We probably need to talk about that episode more, right? I think that was in one of our um, honorable mentions, wasn't it, Kivas Fajo? Yeah, I think you're right about that. Yeah, thanks, Stefan. Really appreciate the, the comments, and thanks, everyone, for your Babel Conference feedback. Thank you. All right, so join with us today is a special guest who has been on Earl Grey before. It's Shoab Mirza. Shoab, welcome back to Earl Grey. Hi, thanks for having me back. Yeah, great to have you here. I'm looking forward to the talk today. Yeah, you know, uh, last time that we had you on, it was for favorite conflict resolution moments. And I think that was me, you and Amy, right? Right, yeah. Yeah. And this time, so you had some other topics that you had sent us. And I wanted to just uh, talk about the topic that you sent us that uh, that Joe and I had, had, uh, had agreed we should uh, take a look at. So... It says, the power of words, language, and communication on TNG. Star Trek is never shied from grandiose dialogue, is full of complicated terms, technobabble, and Shakespeare. What moments or episodes pushed your own vocabulary and taught you something? So we're going to go off of that topic, however the three of us interpret it, uh, for top three choices and an honorable mention. So I'm just curious uh, why you wanted to talk about this topic or how you came up with it. I'd say, uh, like I've expressed before, Star Trek has been in my life for as long as I can remember. And a lot of my own personality, my own vocabulary, my way of dealing with people has been influenced by what I, I've watched on screen for this, this many years. So to me, uh, especially watching uh, TNG, their style of speaking is so refined, especially uh, amongst the crew. And that's something which I've, I've always found was uh, really empowering because uh, when you're c- communicating with others, you want to express yourself, but do it in a really polite way where you can get those um, your emotions, the ideas across, but also ex- expand your vocabulary is really was really important to me growing up because I have like two three languages at 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 home, not just English being spoken. So it's kind of a, a like sort of a extra way of learning 
for me as well. So that's sort of where I came up with the idea. Okay, that's excellent. And it'll be interesting to see how we interpreted the topic because I know I may have interpreted it uh, maybe a little differently than others did. We'll see. Is this another time travel thing? No, I was, I was going to say no time travel for me as long as Jellicoe doesn't come into this. Sure. Okay, that's, we'll make okay. that deal then. Awesome. <laughs> I'm in. All right. All right. So, so Shub, since you picked the topic and you're guesting with us here, what's your first pick? Okay, I'm going to go in like reverse to the one that was my third pick and then go down. Okay. That's okay. So the first one is from uh, Schisms, season six, episode five. And it's a really famous scene. Now, as you can watch on YouTube, people watch it like crazy. It's the Ode to Spot scene oh. <laughs> where he's, he's reciting his poem he wrote, his, his original work about his cat. And uh, I don't know, I thought I would at least read it so everyone could get refreshed. Yes. Sure, yeah. Contents, okay. We would have insisted that you do a recital. Yeah, I was about to ask you to read okay. it. Yeah. Ready? And your best data, please. <clears throat> okay. <laughs> Felis catus is your taxonomic nomenclature, an endothermic quadruped carnivorous by nature. Your visual, olfactory, and auditory senses contribute to your hunting skills and natural defenses. I find myself intrigued by your subvocal oscillations a singular development of cat communications that obviates your basic hedonistic predilection for a rhythmic stroking of your fur to demonstrate affection. A tail is quite essential for your acrobatic talents. You would not be so agile if you lacked its counterbalance. And when not being utilized to aid in locomotion, it often serves to illustrate the state of your emotion. Oh, spot, the complex levels of behavior you display connote a fairly well-developed cognitive array. And though you are not sentient, Spot, and do not comprehend, I nonetheless consider you a true and valued friend. Oh, man, that's Aww. a lot All of right. words in there. I love that uh, poem, though. You know, I, I was thinking of interrupting you partway through where, like, Riker's asleep and he thinks <laughs> yeah, it's over. Yeah. But, but no. <laughs> that scene no, is that, classic. That, and that, that was a, a great job. And there are so many like uh, complex words and things that you just don't say every day yeah, in that poem. Yeah. So you did a great job reciting that. And it is very memorable uh-huh. in that in that episode, for sure. What do you think, Joe? I, it's interesting because whenever I watch that episode, I'm not sure, because I'm not an English teacher, yeah? So I don't know how that would be graded as a poem, <laughs> yeah? yeah. Um, or an ode in this case, if it's really artistic and clever or it's just kind of funny the reason i like it is because it's just full of science like me just now kind of understand understands all the words me as a teenager um kind of understood them by its context but then had to go away and look up all the words kind of so there's lots um like quadruped yeah, obviously four-legged carnivorous we know what that means olfactory i'd never heard of the word olfactory before but it's to do with your sense of smell um and there's just so much of it it's just uh it's, yeah it's, it's brilliant isn't it I yeah, the it. way the way i saw this when i was thinking of uh, moments there's so many moments obviously in track especially tng but i was thinking of data the first thing i thought it was data throughout the series he's like um snoop sir and and Picard's like, what do you mean, Snoop? Uh, you you don't you data. How can you not know the word Snoop? You have all the encyclopedia of human knowledge. You don't know the word Snoop. And then he's going processing, processing, and he's suddenly, oh, Snoop, to stealthily go do this and whatever. So I was just thinking, this this is quintessential data, 
I had his best. He's gonna tell you all all, all the information, and he's gonna, you know, show his emotions, which he doesn't have. Yeah, I I mean I I think like a couple of things. I think of the talent of the the writers who wrote that stuff, and they wrote it in a way. And I was looking it up on Memory Alpha. It's in iambic heptameter. I think iambic pentameter is more common but like they wrote it in like a certain specific way and tried to stick to that and tried to stick to how data would do poetry and it just illustrates something great about his character also which is he is this android he's supposed to not really have emotions but you see him trying to do poetry and painting and playing the violin he's trying to do all these creative pursuits which are not required for his duties or his survival or anything like that but he is really curious to to branch out and it and it's just really great that that he makes it such a like formal scientific thing it's kind of funny but at the same time it's kind of sweet because that's his way of expressing his affection without doing it emotionally so right yeah even the fact that um on because i'm on memory alpha just now it says iambic heptameter and that's totally what data would do he would probably go with some really obscure kind of mode of writing and do that. Yeah. And iambic um, heptameter is to do with the fact that each line, I think, has 14 syllables, mm. which is interesting in itself. Yeah. Well, and that the hepta part is like for seven. So there's yeah. seven like feet or like, I guess, groups of syllables or something. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's very interesting that he does that and he does it in such a specific way. Yeah. But, but, pff, I think we'll see what other things we come up with, but I think you've chosen the one that probably expands our vocabulary the most show up in the <laughs> yeah. first pick because there's lots exactly. of words in there that, that even when, when I'm listening to it, I'm like, okay, that means that. Maybe look <laughs> yeah. up that. You know, Instead so. of going through your own personal uh, vocabulary, right? Trying to figure out what he means. I think when I first heard it, I was like, oh, data's being really formal. I didn't really think about it and like analyze it until later what he's actually saying. Yeah, so. yeah. I suppose you could re- rewrite a much simpler version replacing yeah. all the scientific words with kind of normal everyday words like your sight, smell, and hearing senses. Yeah. Yeah, the way he writes it is like he's like a fourth-year doctorate student, right? Trying to just uh, do poetry, like most, most um, analytical and straightforward way without any dumbed-down words, let's say. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, great, great pick for sure. So, Joe, your first pick. Right, kind of. It's not the same, but it's kind of chosen for the same reasons. And I had chosen the language used throughout that I was unfamiliar with as a teenager. And it was only recently that I discovered what they were actually saying a lot of the time when they say, belay that order. Oh, belay. Yes, Uh so... There's this auditory illusion that your brain fills in details um, if it doesn't quite understand what it hears. Um, and I always heard delay that order. Oh, which isn't, okay. isn't so different. It means like don't do something just now. Um, but belay, it turns out, I've only discovered recently, means to disregard it altogether and completely, which is amazing. And there's some other examples like in Best of Both Worlds where they're on Jure 4 and Commander Shelby has beamed down early. There's the whole early bird gets the warm thing and Data says um, there's no evidence of avifaunal or craw- crawling vermicular life forms on Jure 4. 
Um, and then there's another word um, that um, Data says. He says, I believe Commander Shelby erred. And as a teenager, I'd never heard the word erred before, meaning to have made a mistake. Um, so there's all things like that. There's something that LaForge says about Shelby. Um, it's a bit of a, it's the way he says it and it's the way his lips move and make it sound like it felt like a bit of a tongue twister. She's a formidable presence to say the least. And that is quite difficult to say. She's a formidable presence to say the least, which I found interesting. So the lot, again, there's just lots of words there that um, it taught me a lot. Yeah, and that, that's a great pick because it is something that I've thought of because I think it's quite possible before I started really watching Star Trek and concentrating on it, I'd never really heard the word belay. I guess it goes to maybe like a naval kind of tradition. Yes, I could right. be wrong here. But 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 it is, does mean something very specific, and you do hear it in different parts of Star Trek. I was just looking up. You hear Kirk say it. You hear Picard say it. You hear Janeway say it. You hear Riker say it. I mean, there's different like parts in Star Trek where you hear people saying, like, belay that order. And it's usually something where somebody gives an order and they're like, no, we're not going to go ahead with that. Yeah. Yeah. And for something like Aired, as a kid, you could be like A I R E D, <laughs> yes. which is different than E R R E D, like Aired. So it is interesting, like also when you think about language, when you see something written on a page, it's very clear, like this is the word. But when you hear it spoken and you're not familiar with the word, you could interpret it a lot of different ways. And this happens with me also in music i mishear lyrics like all the time and i fill in things that i think it is <laughs> right we, it's the same um, kind of it's phenomenon something that i learned when i was younger um like i said i uh, growing up in a house with several languages so at school i would be kind of lost in translation often in the in my first few years of grade school so often the that sort of trick i learned from one of my um teachers was to try to infer what they mean so you, so you take the first few words that they're saying and then the last ones, and then you kind of extrapolate and uh, interpolate mm. what, what they meant by that. And that's really served me a lot in my life. It's a bit like if you're in a really busy venue, like a nightclub or something, and somebody's <laughs> talking to you. Usually young people, because they can hear perfectly in nightclubs, um, and they're talking at you, but you have no clue what they're saying. And so basically you have to kind of listen to their tone and their facial expressions so you know when to say yes and no. Right. Well, and and I've had the experience, I, I guess, went to uh, some concerts recently and like it was loud enough that you can't hear anything unless someone is like directly like right near your ear, mm -hmm. <laughs> like yelling into your ear. So, And I always find that weird to experience. But yeah, like it is easy to misinterpret things. So as a kid, you always thought it was delay, and then it was more recently you found out it was actually belay, which means something a little yeah. different. Yeah. In relation to misheard lyrics, I'm a huge fan of Tori Amos, the American uh -huh. singer-songwriter, um, and she's famous for kind of not being lazy with the way she says anything but leaving them ambiguous then leaving mm, the lyrics mm -hmm. kind of really ambiguous so there could be multiple meanings to what she's saying um so every i think every toremos lyric in existence i have misheard you <laughs> might as well it might as well just be a different song we might as well take a bit of a, a tangent on this because like i think sometimes the way you hear something differently um can really affect the interpretation of, of the song. So I'm going to give you guys just an example. So the example that I have, <laughs> guys, because I didn't really even know the name of the song. So there's a, 
a song from the the 60s of Smokey Robinson the Miracle Song called I Second That Emotion, right? Which which has like a very specific meaning, but I always heard it until I don't know, 5 years ago as a second-hand emotion. Oh, okay. <laughs> so okay. like for me and for me that would interpret it differently like it's, I know it's a weird thing to think about, like, but like an emotion that comes secondhand from someone else. Okay. So I was thinking all these years, and then I was like, oh, it means something totally different. So, and and like in your case, Joe, like delaying something until later is different than belaying, which is like disregard that, right? So it just like completely kind of changes the sense of the word. Yeah. So. But in the moment, they kind of mean the same thing. Like it means they both mean don't do it right now. Yeah. 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 Um, the best misheard lyric, though. Um, I still miss hear it, even though I know what they're singing, is the song Freed from Desire by, I think, Gala, where the line is, my, mon- my, my love has got no money, he's got his strong beliefs. Do you know the song? No, maybe I don't actually. Google it, yeah. So I, the, he's got his strong beliefs. I misheard, he's got his, oh yeah, strong beliefs, I misheard as Trump beliefs. And I thought Trump beliefs was a French word. I made this up in my head, like a head cannon. Yeah, Trump beliefs was like a, a French word meaning really baggy pants, like M- <laughs> MC Hammer pants. So like he's got oh, no wow. money, but he's fine because he's got these really baggy trousers. He's got his Trump beliefs. I love that. That's yeah. awesome. All right. So since since we've gone there, listeners. You might as well let us know your favorite misheard lyrics. That has nothing to do with Star Trek, but it does have to do with this discussion. I think we should do a whole episode on misheard song lyrics. <laughs> yeah. It's not really Star Trek, but it would be hilarious. Yeah, patron exclusive maybe. But that's a great choice, Joe, and it is something that I've like thought about at the back of my mind, but I totally didn't think about it for this topic. Okay, so my first choice, and I I don't know, I maybe I'm going about this a different way than than you guys are, and that's fine. Because my first choice is actually something where I knew the word before, but it's being used in a different way than I had heard it before, and possibly in a different way than Star Trek fans had heard it before. So this first comes up in the Best of Both Worlds Part 2, basically where you see Locutus and Riker talking to each other you know, eventually Locutus says, discussion is irrelevant. There are no terms. You will disarm all your weapons and escort us to Sector 001, where we will begin assimilating your culture and technology. And it's specifically the word assimilate or assimilating. Because like, if you take a look at the, the dictionary definition of assimilation, it says process of taking in and fully understanding information or ideas or absorption and integration of people, ideas, or culture into a wider society or culture. And I think I had an idea of those kinds of senses, but Star Trek with the Borg and starting with Best of Both Worlds takes it to another level where it's it's not just like absorb like when you think about the process of assimilation, which I know can be a very controversial topic as far as as like people and and cultures, it's 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 kind of adjusting things to kind of fit the culture that you're a part of, possibly leaving behind other traditions and things like that. But in the case of the Borg, it's like your entire identity and free will are subsumed or assimilated into the Borg collective. So it made me think of this word in a different way ever afterward. So that was my first choice. What do you guys think? Um, I think I'm the opposite to that. I had never heard the word before. Oh, but okay. since, obviously, so my 
first knowledge about the word assimilation was purely from Star Trek, where they're going to basically take all your best bits and like kind of bring you into their society and make you copies of themselves. Um, but now, given the kind of the world's a lot smaller and you know about, I've learned about examples of assimilation in other cultures, like um, in the UK over the last decade or so, um, there's been lots of economic migrants into the country and there are issues with their assimilation into the kind of British culture, I suppose. Um, is there a requirement to assimilate? And I think there's some US examples as well. Um, oh, we've had we've had quite the, the history on that one, yes. <laughs> for sure. Yeah, so. uh, also here in Canada, it's not really spoken about, but it's here as well. I guess it's like a worldly type of, it's it's human nature, I think. Right, when you have groups of people migrating around. Yeah, I take it in the US and Canada, it's about indigenous populations not assimilating into Western culture. Well, I mean, it, it, it certainly, like, I, I can only speak for, for the, the US. I guess it was the case in Canada as well. But yeah, that, that's kind of how it started. Europeans coming in mm -hmm. and the native or indigenous populations, um, in some cases, being forced to adjust or assimilate into the, the the prevailing, you know, European influence culture, but it 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 also, at least I, I know in the U.S. over time, as as different uh, groups of of immigrants have come from you know different parts of Europe, but then also from Asia and Africa and all over the world, there have have been these. Uh, things that have happened where over time, like through the generations, um, you know, people are kind of adjusting to more and more of the American culture. Like for, for my ancestors, my dad's side of the family, they were um, Eastern European Jews that came in the, the late 19th century. And for my mom's side of the family, they were from Southern Italy in the 19th century. And of course, when they came here, they spoke a different language. They had, you know, different religion and culture than a lot of the people around them. But definitely, like as I looked at my family history, generation to generation, people were more, you know, speaking English, thinking of themselves as American, not as much adhering to the religion or the traditions. And I mean, for, for me, since my mom and my dad came from these like different cultures, like I, I think of the things that come from those cultures, but it's not actually like a really big part of my life, like a hundred and 30 years later or something like that, right? So that does change as you're there generation after generation oftentimes, although not always, I think. So that I can only speak for the US, maybe it's different in Canada, but. Right, that's something I can speak on like a personal level, being first, uh, first gen here, being born here, and like my parents being from Pakistan, India. So that's, uh, that's for sure. Like I see myself and that's what my, our parents will say, oh, you guys are losing the culture, you're losing the language. You guys are veering away from religion, right? And then we'll see like my kids and so on and so forth. They'll start to assimilate further in, into the culture here. Yeah. And I mean, I think part of it is like if you're exposed more on like a daily basis to this this other culture instead of the culture of your parents or your aunts. I mean, of course it influences you, right? And the people that you know and work with and go to school with like may be a part of this culture or influence you in that way i think it 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 can just happen right yeah so are we not thinking that when we talk about culture like western culture and we're treating it as some kind of monolithic unchanging entity and i think we should be looking at it as something um like 
cultures are enriched by immigration and people bringing aspects of their culture. So, sure, I'm thinking that by you coming to, like, or your family, your parents coming from Pakistan, they would have brought, brought aspects of, like, Pakistani culture into Canada, and that would have thereby enriched the life of Canada as a, as, as a nation. Right. Yeah, that's right. And here, um, particularly in the Toronto area, it's very uh, cosmopolitan and, and like international. So you have all the different types of uh, foods there. People have their own restaurants. They will speak their own languages. A lot of people won't learn English for that reason. So even our like even the government text that you'll find in manuals and um, even at the government facilities, you'll have posters saying welcome in like 50 different languages. You'll have yes. books. Yeah. People can, if they speak Cantonese or Mandarin, you can find that uh, it's, it's readily available, even in Arabic or, or Urdu, like they speak in, uh, in Pakistan, for example. So it's uh, like the societies learn to, I want to say assimilate, but to, um, to allow people to process themselves into, the, in, in, into their environment in a, in a really smooth manner. And to slowly get themselves to a point where they feel comfortable speaking English and communicating with others here. Yeah. No, I mean, Joe, it's, it's a really good point. I mean, I definitely believe that the different cultures that, that come into, into other countries, like into the U.S. or Canada or no, in the U.K., like I think it does enrich that culture and add something to have all of that diversity. I was just speaking in terms of what's tended to happen, at least in the U.S. over time, that the, the people that are here generation after generation are less somewhat less connected to that that culture. And actually where I live in El Paso, Texas is an interesting example because you know m- the vast majority of the people here um, are of Mexican descent. I mean, some people have lived here generation after generation, but because Mexico's right across the border, there's still an extremely strong influence from the the Mexican culture. And in some ways, some places, the only difference really is that like the signs are in English, right? But it's it's kind of like a similar feeling to being across the border in in Mexico. So there are places like this, I think, where in some ways more the Mexican culture is more dominant than the American culture, which is pretty interesting. That's interesting. It's interesting for me, um, growing up where I grew up um, near Glasgow, when I went to school, both primary school and high school, um, it was all white Scottish kids that went there. My first experience of anybody from anywhere else was when I went to university um, and I I made friends with like people. There was a guy who he was of Chinese descent. His parents were Chinese, and a girl who was of Indian descent. And so it just kind of opened this kind of new world. And it, it was nothing to do um, with the people I chose to hang about with. It just there wasn't anybody available of that wasn't white. Um, and I think my life was more enriched by having access to all these different cultures and different kind of ways of thinking and different ideas, which is much cooler. And then we come to STLV and there's people from everywhere, which is, which is amazing. Yeah. All over the world. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's go on to our second picks. So Shoab, let's have your second pick. Okay. My second pick is from Parallels season seven, episode 11. Uh, when data is talking about quantum fissures, uh, particularly, uh, he's just, dis- he's describing the whole situation, 
uh, with the with, with the quantum realities. And there's a short uh, quote of his. He goes, "For any event, there there's an in infinite number of possible outcomes. Our choices de determine which outcomes will follow. But there is a theory in quantum physics that all possibilities that can happen do happen in alternate quantum realities." And when I heard this, I was maybe I still remember it for some reason. This episode uh, in '94, I was six and a half, uh, seven years old. Oh wow! So just being a sponge, hearing everything I'm 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 hearing and watching on TV, just soaked in. But this, I was like, "What is this concept? And what's going on?" Right? <laughs> the whole episode's a jumble of different details that change, right? And then you have poor Worf going through phases, just seeing things change as 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 the episode progresses. And this moment when Data's explaining it in this manner, I was like, wow, that's possible that there's whatever I'm doing right now could be different in a different place somehow, mm. right? And that, mm -hmm. and that there's multiple versions of me and I'm just sitting there like, what? <laughs> What's going on? And yeah, so um, it's that kind of uh, opened up my mind to these amazing concepts, right? In science and uh, physics that, uh, that I never would have thought about outside of Star Trek. Yeah, I mean, it's probably a very mind-blowing thing if you're six or seven to think about, right? Yeah, yeah. And then I remember, because <laughs> uh, sure. my brother's 10 years, my eldest brother's 10 years older than me. So I remember asking him, what does all this mean? What's going on? Like, why is uh, Worf changing and where's Captain Picard? Because right? near the end of the episode, in the last few scenes, it's Picard as, uh, in, in that reality, he was gone. And I was like, what's going on? What happened to him? Like, oh, don't worry, he'll be back. It's just, just <laughs> it's a different reality. I'm like, what does that mean? <laughs> but yeah, I mean, and it's a concept that that still, in some ways, is is a little hard to understand because we haven't actually like had the physical experience of what that's like. But it is based on a real thing. I mean, there is a many worlds interpretation of quantum physics right. to try to make some of that work. So it could very well be that there's all of these kind of branching realities based on all of the decisions that are made and all possible things are actually happening, which, which, which kind of blows my mind. Like, where do you, all the energy come for that? But, right. but, but yeah, it's a very mind expanding concept. Mm -hmm. What do you think, Joe? And um, it's really interesting because that's an example I use in teaching all the time. Cause I teach physics. Um, and when you're talking to the pupils about the scale of the universe, now, and you always get them to write their address, but be as specific as possible. Um, and they always kind of stop at their town. Um, but they don't say like what country or what continent and they don't say the earth and it's the third planet of the solar system and kind of the whatever arm of the Milky Way galaxy. And then you just progress, when you're talking to them, you progressively get bigger and bigger and bigger. And then somebody invariably asks the question about kind of multiple universes or kind of infinite dimensions. And so I show them that wee clip of data doing his little explanation with the uh, animated graphic where it His little splits PowerPoint. off, yeah, splits off yeah. <laughs> um, into multiple branches. Um, so yeah, I, that's one of the examples that I use in teaching all the time. So that's pretty cool. There are loads of examples actually. Um, I noticed Amy is a big fan of like using Star Trek and teaching, and I thought I don't, I don't think I'd really do it half as much as I should because there are. I've taken a lot from Star Trek over the years, um, so I probably should use what I've taken from it. 
You host a Star Trek podcast now, so you have got to use it more in your teaching. I'm a famous podcaster now. I know I really, I really, sh- <laughs> yeah. really should. Um, but it was making me think of examples where I do the same. And there's the line that Data says um, about the burn in the midnight oil. And the line is, what is the etymology of that idiom? And I think in teaching, etymology is a really useful thing. Because if you if you've got like obscure concepts, if you can explain to the pupils where certain words came from, and a prime example is when you're teaching about electrical circuits and you're teaching about like current and charge, and why does um, charge have the symbol I, and no charges this oh I'm getting it wrong I'm failing at being a teacher, um, charges the symbol Q and current has the symbol I, and like. That they just get confused over that. So you give them the context of that, okay, it was a French scientist, it was um, Ampere and Coulomb that did the experiments with it. And when they were talking about it, they were speaking French. So um, Ampere spoke about the intensity of the current. So he gave it the symbol I, and now we just call it current. And Coulomb talked about the quantization of charge or the quantity of the charge, so he gave it the mm. symbol Q. So there's lots that word etymology that data used has stuck with me forever. And I just always I think I've got a really kind of passionate passing interest in etymology now, just because of Star Trek. That's something that I can uh sympathize with. I've I'm also that kind of weirdo who will sit there listening to people talk. But wait, where did that phrase come from? <laughs> yeah. Right? And I'll ask them what's the history of the phrase. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, or I'll at least go back and I'll try to note it down and try to figure out what does that mean. Like I let, how I drive my wife nuts. I'm like, let, let me Google this and figure out where it came from. She's like, oh my God, not again. <laughs> You're going to search another term and tell me the history of it. And I yeah. love finding out the history of how stuff got to be the way it is. Yeah. yeah. Oh, very cool. All right, so Joe, your second pick. Oh, second pick. Okay, can we have? We have to. It's in the kind of show outline almost. It's like Shakespeare. I think we can't talk about language in Star Trek without talking about Shakespeare. And the prime example, it's not only Shakespeare. It's from Menage à Troy, where Picard is trying to win. Oh, you've 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 got to do it melodramatically, Joe. You've got to read it. Melodramatically. <laughs> do you know what? Actually, I was I was practicing it earlier. And it's like the worst Patrick Stewart ever. I'd be ashamed, but I will do it for you guys. Yeah, but it's in, it's intentionally bad. Yeah, don't worry, Joel. That, it's it. You'll only be telling. It's just between the three of us, right? Yeah, yeah nobody else is going to hear this. No, nobody. <laughs> no, just our listeners in the Czech Republic and Hungary. <laughs> all, all three of them. Okay, so Picard is trying to win back the love of Luxana Troy, who's been held captive on a by some Ferengi demon on his ship. And he just goes into a series of Shakespeare sonnets, um, a variety of different sonnets, uh, until he's interrupted by the daemon. So, here goes nothing. My love is a fever, longing still for that which longer nurseth the disease. In faith, I do not love these with mine eyes, for they and thee a thousand errors see. But tis my heart that loves what they despise, who, in despite of you, are pleased to doubt. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Thou art more lovely and temperate. So, yeah. 
Bravo. Encore, encore. <laughs> yeah, that, that was great, Joe. Although maybe it was kind of a, a mix between your Picard and your Admiral Satie. Uh, quite possibly, <laughs> yes. Um, but I love that. It's great. But you didn't do the gesture where he's, he's like oh, holding he's, his, he, his he arm does out. That whole, it's this really melodramatic pose that he starts out with as if he's going to, yeah. he's going to go into his like, because he's a stage yeah, actor. Which, so. which has become the uh, famous meme where his hands are outstretched and and people just put random blurbs underneath it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. And then he goes into, "'Tis better to have loved and lost than to never have loved at all," which isn't Shakespeare. <laughs> it's Tennyson. Ah, uh, okay. See, even someone who's as, like, well-read well, well and well-rounded as Picard can go on tangents while speaking Shakespeare. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's genius. And then um, the best use of Shakespeare... Um, not in that episode in Deja Q where he quotes Hamlet um, and he's talking to Q um, about humanity and like the future of humans and he says I have to do it in the accent again in the really bad Admiral Satie voice (laughs) (laughs) okay it's your go to okay Um, okay he's got gravitas here so it's not like he's trying to win a Luxana voice what he said with irony, I say with conviction. What a piece of work is man. How noble in reason. How infinite in faculty. In form, in moving. How express and admirable. In action, how like an angel. In apprehension, how like a god. Bravo. Fantastic. Is that better? Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> love it. I love it. So it's that kind of, it's really f- floral language. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's not the English we use today. And when I say English we use today, it's like what we're all using. And I know, like, Justin, you'll be speaking American English and I'm speaking whatever English I speak. And Schwab, I don't know. You're speaking I'll be using English. Canadian yes. English. Hey. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes. Um, so, and that, that made me think, obviously, Shakespeare wrote in the language of the time like a few hundred years ago and we are like a, what th- i don't know three four hundred years separated from that 400, maybe 400 years 400 yeah. years so star trek the next generation is like 400 years almost from now so how is the language going to change right but it hasn't much uh, okay and that's the interesting thing about star trek because if you look back at it like if you look at the original series in a way they're speaking how people would in the 1960s because i notice sometimes there are certain phrases or ways of of like having exclamations or, or doing things that feels very of that time and then if you go into like the 80s and 90s or something very particular about it and if you go forward so it's very much the language of whenever they're really making this thing but I'm sure hundreds of years from now, it might be as different as like Shakespeare is to us. Although there is a case to be made that because we have like a system of global communications, that it might be that some languages may stay more stable over time. I don't know, though, because there is all kinds of slang and things that come in all the time that change yeah. the language. Uh, there, there's all kinds of thi- things in our conversation that somebody 30 years ago would know what the heck we were talking about. Right, right or how we use like the... Uh and our text messages, these short forms that abbreviated right. LOL and LMAO. And- yeah, somebody looking at that like 30 years ago would be like, what What does that mean? What are you talking about? Yeah, and then you like even have kids these days. They're, I'm saying kids these days, but I'm... Those kids these <laughs> <yeah>. days. <laughs> but they speak using uh, emojis. I think I'm just past that age. 
right? But if I was maybe five, six years younger, I'd probably be doing that too. Where it's just just emojis they're speaking with, and that's its own language too, right? Yeah. Oh, it's like when when abbreviations like lol and FOMO become actual <laughs> words, right? And so my, people might say lol instead of actually laughing. Right. Which yeah, you probably exactly. should do if you're laughing out it loud. Would be, it would be so interesting to project like uh, 50 years into the future if people were just using things that are like little abbreviations <laughs> or emojis and see what that co- what that podcast would be like. Yeah. Well, that might be difficult. But, <laughs> but it's oh, all boy. from, is that, that's a, a hangover from when Twitter only allowed you to use like 120 characters and messages. No, no, it, it's it's not. it's not just it's not just that because I remember um, when I was first like doing instant messaging. This was probably when I was in college in like the ninety seven, ninety eight. Like there wasn't really a limit to what you could put in the in the box or what you could say. I think, but you would use all of these abbreviations because you'd want to get across things really quickly because you'd want to type something out before the other person typed it out. So you'd have like this conversation that would make sense. So there was, because of like the, the, the instant written communication, there became an incentive for using abbreviations and leaving out certain words and putting like the letter U instead of Y-O-U and stuff like that, because you'd want to type it out quickly. And sometimes also, I remember back then, like you would have multiple conversations going on at the same time. So you'd have like three or four chat windows and you'd be like, over here, over here, over here. I mean, just, it would just be like crazy how quickly you'd have to do stuff. So I think it it came from that and not really from any like actual limitation, but from having to type things out really quickly. There's maybe then an argument to say that just now earlier you said that globally lang- some languages might stay more stable. Hmm there might be an argument that languages might change quicker because of world influences. Um, but like, I think in a hundred years time, they will be, if they're speaking English, it will be pretty much unintelligible. There'll be little snippets. It'll be like, if you're Spanish trying to listen to a Portuguese person, they're very similar languages, but they'll be completely different. It'll just have evolved very quickly. Yeah, I mean that could very well be. It is it is really interesting because you think about language and you can watch stuff even in Star Trek from like 50 years ago and you know what's going on, right? Mm-hmm. You really know what they're talking about. Just there's certain words or things where you're like, "Huh, people don't really talk like that anymore, but I kind of know what they're saying." But yeah, if you go forward further on, I'm sure it'll be the case that it'll be, it would be difficult to understand or like what happens with Shakespeare, like if you read something that's like um kind of of a version where it tells you like, okay, this word means this and they mean this. And here's the history of that. Because like, if, if you as like a modern English speaker, just try to read Shakespeare without having the notes or understanding some of the words, it's kind of hard to follow, isn't it? Um, I, I think at least. So when I was in high school, it was great that we had those books where it would be like little notes, like this means this, and here's the history. Here's why he's talking about that. Here's the event that was going on then, you know, that kind of yeah, stuff. You have so, like the footnotes, right? Yeah. Go, yeah. I, I, I guess I was thinking about this um, last day. Uh, Star Trek has its own kind of the lexicon, right? It's its own dictionary. And literally they'll have words and phrases which they have to use often because that creates that world and it, it gives it that realism, which we as fans were just clinging to, right? Like subspace, right? right they yeah. kind of made that up for Star Trek, but and it means something very particular, but it's a word that was kind of created for Star yeah. Trek. Uh, you have a warp drive, warp speed, all that kind of stuff is... Yeah. 
exactly. It, you're right. It does. There is its own like Star Trek language that I'm sure somebody just dropping into a random episode who's not a Star Trek fan has never seen it might be like, what is that? Why are they talking that way? Right. You know, yeah. but we've gotten used to it. Yeah, and you hear something like, oh, we have to uh, release the drive plasma and the the plasma inducers are failing and yada, yada, yada. And we're like, oh, wow. Oh, they're going to die, blah, blah, blah. And everyone else is like, what are they talking about? Like, this yeah, what, what is, why are they yeah. reversing the polarity? Yeah, try yeah. <laughs> reversing the polarity. <laughs> yeah. Okay, awesome. So that's a great pick, Joe. I mean, Shakespeare is just a classic Star Trek influence. So for my second pick, I'll have to think about this because, okay, so... So here's like a specific example. I'll, I'll see what you guys think. Um, it's actually from one of my favorite early TNG episodes where no one has gone before, which is the first one with the traveler and where they're going these incredible distances, right? And something that kind of expanded my mind at the time that I was, was seeing it was kind of the way the traveler was talking about these things. So I'm just going to read out the scene between, um, between Wesley and the, and the traveler. So Wesley says, what happened to you? Is it part of what happened to the ship? And the traveler says, please believe me. I mean, no harm to this vessel or those in it. Is Mr. Kaczynski like he sounds a joke? No, that's too cruel. He has sensed some small part of it. And Wesley says that space and time and thought aren't the separate things they appear to be. I just thought the formula you were using said something like that. And the traveler says, boy, don't ever say that again, and especially not at your age in a world that's not ready for such such dangerous nonsense. So, like, what I took out of that scene is, so first of all, like, space and, and time not being separate, that's actually part of Einstein's theories of relativity. We know that space-time is, like, an integrated thing and not really separate. But in this episode, it's positing that thought isn't separate from that as well, that thought can really be an integral part and influence space-time and what you can do and where you can travel. So there was just something about the language, the way that they were talking about that and talking about the power of thought being able to like have an important influence on space-time that I think when I first, that was one of the first TNG episodes where I was like, wow, that's really something that they're putting forward there. And they also travel like a billion light years or something, which kind of blew my mind. Um, so there, there was just a little something about that and how they described it. It wasn't just seeing it, but it was actually talking about like the merging of space and time and, and thought that really kind of expanded the way I think about things. The Traveler is almost, there's something mystical about him. Yeah. Like he's a, a seer. Like, if it was a fantasy show, he'd be, like, some kind of old woman with a crystal ball. <laughs> and he's got that kind of magical way about him. And the language the language definitely conveys that sense that he's he's connected to some other world somewhere. And he it kind of reminds me of the aliens from the movie Arrival with Amy right, Adams. Yeah. If you've seen that, where it's all about, yeah, it's, it's all about communication. In, in that movie um yeah so he definitely he's definitely a bit strange yeah he's like a ethereal sort of prophet type of thing right that's he the has, word yeah yeah right he's he's there but he's not really there mm-hmm. and just the, even the way he speaks he's like oh this is just a, a a place where i'm just kind of i'm traveling through literally he's a traveler he's and he's on to the next uh, uh ascending to the next plateau of reality or maybe he's crossing between you know thresholds of reality i mean and 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 like this this concept of thought really influencing like space and time and things that happen i mean it it gets picked up in different parts of star trek i actually think particularly 
uh, because I'm doing a Voyager rewatch of what happens to Kess, I think, in The Gift before she leaves, where basically she has these mental powers that, uh, that Tuvok is helping her with, but it gets to the point where she's, like, using her thoughts to, like, dig deeply into, like, the subatomic structure of things and starts, like, melting things and just, like, warping the ship and all this stuff. So that gets picked up in different parts of Star Trek. And I think it is interesting in a show like Star Trek that very much, like... I think tries to be science-based that there are these parts where they talk about things like telepathy and the power of thought that you might not at first glance think, I mean, Star Trek kind of takes that as a given, like there are people that can really read other people's thoughts. There are people whose thoughts can really like influence the real world. It kind of like accepts that as like a scientific reality of the time, but it's far from, from proven at this point. But I've always found that kind of interesting because it has that element that goes I think fairly far beyond what's been confirmed in science right now. That was that was deep, Justin. <laughs> yeah, just 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 hearing you say that about how humans uh, transcend their physical, you know, abilities. It's um, it's like the, uh, the episode where no man, where no man has gone before in um, and in the original oh, series, TOS, right? Yeah, right. Where they where they crossed the barrier and they became superhuman, right? So yeah. Yeah, so that's that's been around since the beginning of Trek. So. Yeah, and and all the godlike beings and powers in the original series. I mean, there are things that are going on where it does seem like us, like it's magic, yeah. right? <laughs> that that's happening. But for them, like this is reality, and it would be pretty interesting if in a few hundred years that is really part of the reality, and we accept that. Yeah. So anyway, those kinds of things like bend my mind like, okay, if you think about something like warp drive, all right, you can have like a scientific theory around it and think about how you might do that and impulse engines and whatever. But when you're thinking of the power of thought, like we don't have any kind of coherent, like scientific theory that would say that should be the case, that it would have that kind of influence. So yeah, I suppose this is where you get into the into like the metaphysics, right? So yeah. metatrikes, obviously, they're showing the <laughs> network of, for that. So I don't, I'm thinking I'm trying to form a thought here. Yeah. Coherent thought about. Okay, don't melt me. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, too far away. My powers don't extend to that. Oh, okay. That Limited range. range. That's good. Um, so there's something about the way the brain operates, how it's, um, how it communicates with itself, and that it's all electrical impulses. And so there's lots of electromagnetic fields around everything the brain does, and in technology we use electromagnetic fields to manipulate things and allow electrical circuits to work and you think about how mri machines operate and they have the ability to remotely basically read the structure of the brain based on kind of magnetic dipoles so i don't see and why in the future we wouldn't be able to have some kind of thought some kind of technology technological telepathy or telekinesis so you're saying that we just need to figure out how to be a human mri machine Kinda, yeah. <laughs> kind of, yeah. <laughs> okay. I think there's, wow. a, there's a bit of a leap, and obviously we're not, we don't understand the way the brain works fully. See, that's the thing. Maybe if we understood fully how the brain works, people, they, there would be ways to be able to harness that in a different way. Who knows? Wow, okay. Some really interesting discussions we're having. All right, so Shoab, your third pick. Okay, so this is uh, one of my favorite episodes of, of, Star Trek in general. I think it's a very popular one. Uh, season five, episode 19, The First Duty. And it's particularly the scene in uh, the Red Room with Captain Picard when he's confronting Wesley after they've discovered the truth of the, um, 
the Cobalt Star would, that they were going to perform those those uh, cadet pilots. Oh, the the maneuver. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I have the little quote here. It's from when he was uh, dressing down Wesley, basically. And okay, I'm going to try my Picard uh, here. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> the first duty of of every Starfleet officer is to the truth, be it scientific truth, historical truth, or personal truth. It is the guiding principle upon which Starfleet is based. If you cannot find it within yourself to stand up and tell the truth about what happened, you do not deserve to wear that uniform. Mr. Crusher, I'll make this simple for you. Either you come forward and tell Admiral Brandt what really took place, or I will. And that scene, um, as as a kid, hey, good good Picard. That's I better like, than I could do. Oh snap! Like he's uh, Wesley's in trouble, and this is really serious. Like I could tell by the tone. Obviously, Picard is amazing. Uh, I mean, Patrick Stewart's portrayal is fantastic, and you feel like like the gravity of how um, I guess the word would be disappointment in Wesley. Right? He he was feeling so uh, like the let down by him. Yeah, it's kind of, I learned from this, the importance of communicating one's uh, one's intention. Like Picard knew what he had to tell him and he wasn't going to force him, but in the same, he was kind of giving him an ultimatum uh, with this statement that you're, that I am compelling you as much as I can, knowing you for all these years to go and tell the truth to the panel or, or, or I will. It, it it's great and and what i love there is that he's talking about different kinds of truth right yeah. like oftentimes we talk about the truth right but he's talking about whether it's scientific truth or historical truth or personal truth that there are different kinds of of truths and different things like and you have to be faithful to all of those things and i think it's great that he makes that distinction like there's not just like the truth there are these different sections and you have to be faithful to all of those things and i think that's really a powerful way to put it and makes you think about it in a in a different way than if you just said the truth right right and and it and it sort of gives that wonderful nuance to the even the title of the episode the first duty right he says it in in this quote which is great but that just adds like another layer of nuance and uh gravitas to the situation because he's not—he's making it more than just uh, serving like this, serving the Federation. It's about your—it's about—it's about yourself and what do you mean? What do you? And what's your intention, right? And and he's not talking with Wesley like you violate a regulation. He's like you violated the first and most important thing. Yeah, that's part of your duty. It's sort of like a uns, unspoken, you know, knowledge, right? You don't really have to talk about it, but. But he's like, kid, you you don't know what you're doing. But <laughs> yeah, you have to strain up now and I'm going to tell you how to. Yeah. Oh, very good. What do you think, Joe? There's obviously a lot more depth to that quote than I'd previously seen. Um, I think it's a really good example of like all the good dialogue being given to Patrick Stewart or maybe not. Maybe it's the case that Patrick Stewart's just such a phenomenal actor that he does magic with what he's given. It's both, though. I mean, Patrick Stewart is an amazing actor, but if somebody wrote something for him that wasn't very good, I mean, it, it requires both. And I think the writing there is really good. And when you have someone who can perform it at the highest level, it just like elevates it so much. I think it's both kind of working together hand in hand. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, Joe, your third pick. Yeah. Well, we do some Technobabble. I know that we, we'd kind of mentioned Technobabble. I'd say go for it because my last pick doesn't have to really do with that. So 
I think the best example of made up gibberish. Um, I didn't even get the name of the episode. What's the episode where the Ferengis take over the ship and Picard and Guinan and Keiko? Uh, that's Rascals. Rascals, Rascals yeah. yeah. So my third pick is from the episode Rascals, and it's the the most genius gibberish techno babble that you could ever possibly have heard. I think I, have, I know what you're about to say. Yes, I have <laughs> quoted this before on a recent roundtable, a patron's roundtable. Um, Riker is telling the Ferengi Morta how the computer works and how the, the Enterprise operates. And he was like, he says, I'm not even going to try a Riker because my American accent will be um, offensive. It'll be offensive. It's an um, alternate universe Scottish Riker. Sure, okay. Um, <laughs> Mick Riker will call him. <laughs> <laughs> Computer, release command control to the station. Authorization, Riker Omega-3. Okay, Morta. The Enterprise computer system is co- controlled by three primary main processing cores, cross-linked with a redundant Melacorts Ramistat and 14 kiloquad interface modules. The core elements are based on FTL nanoprocessor units arranged into 25 bilateral kilolactroles, with 20 of those units being slaved to the central Heisenfram terminal. You do know what a bilateral kilolactrol is, don't you? Morta says, of course I do, human. I am not stupid. Then record goes on. No, of course not. Now, this is the isopalavial interface which controls the main phyromactyl drive unit. Don't touch that. You'll blow up the entire phyromactyl drive. Morta, what? Wait, what is? What is a phyromactyl? Just explain it to me. Riker, oh, sigh. That is the phyromactyl drive unit. It controls the central ramistat core and also keeps the Ontarian manifold within 40,000 krg. <laughs> it's just I love that scene. I love yes. There are snippets of <laughs> things that make sense. Like a Heisenfram terminal sounds a bit like Heisenberg compensator. So you're you can kinda you can kinda buy it. Um there is one thing in there that's that's real though, which is he t- he talks well not real like we have it in our world, but real in the Star Trek world. He talks about an FTL nanoprocessor. FTL yeah. means faster than light, and they do have uh, faster than light processors in their computers. Although I don't know if they really truly confirm that on screen, but they definitely have that in the books. I was under the impression <laughs> that the the optical data network on Starfleet vessels were, was surrounded by subspace fields to enable mm. faster than light communications. I mean, there you I, go. I, I thought everybody knew this. <laughs> That's news um, to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, they never say that on screen, but that makes perfect. At least I don't think they say it on screen, but that makes perfect sense. It does make perfect sense. It does. So is is Riker making this stuff up, or are those actual like technical principles for the computer? I think he's making it up. He's really good at making this stuff up. Well, it's just made up stuff, isn't it? it it's his verbal version of the poker face, right? Because remember, he was um, talking to him on one side, and then his other hand was off to the other end of the console. Oh, okay. And he was uh, giving the nursery uh, access, right? Where Picard and them were. Yeah, yeah. So, see, just in the, just in the point is, like, if I take some Tadactardine, yeah, and put it in a cup with some Millicarnorts and then heat it up <laughs> in the Ruminogenoma, um, it's going to make a bomb and blow everybody up. <laughs> so easy. See, you're you're better at it than I am because I'd find it hard to to make that stuff up. But you made up some great fake techno babble. <laughs> yeah, it's just like I generally in everyday life talk nonsense, so it just comes naturally. 
You should do that to your students once and pretend you're teaching like a, a physical principle and just make up some stuff and see if they notice. I once taught kids that when rats get to a certain age, they <laughs> um, find somewhere quiet and dark, deep under the earth, and they go into a cocoon. <laughs> and then after like a couple of months, they emerge from the cocoon as pigeons. <laughs> 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 which is why pigeons are called flying rats <laughs> and it wasn't a science class so i didn't feel so bad um but i'd never did, any, did anyone it. believe it well they were like young they were 12 so oh. yes and i've never corrected it oh my god you corrupted those 12 year olds <laughs> yes please if you're listening do not contact the gtcs which is my professional body <laughs> and report me wow oh, yeah. so Mr. Keegan made me believe that <laughs> that rats turn into pigeons. <laughs> Same here. I'm wow. just as guilty, Justin. <laughs> that's true, damn it. <laughs> no, but that's a great pick. I mean, there is some some really crazy techno babble in Star Trek, and that's right up there with with the best of it. Yeah. And again, the writers like writing something. I mean, apparently they have the same affinity for it as you do, Joe, just to make up stuff. Indeed. But but yeah, it's pretty great. Cool. Okay. So my third pick. So, and this was one actually, I didn't include it in this, in the description in the episode, but Shrub, I think you included this as an example, so I'm surprised it doesn't come up yet. But it is probably one of the preeminent examples in Star Trek of the power of words and language. And it's got to be Darmok. I'm wearing my Darmok shirt as well. So Um, it's got to be Darmok because, I mean, that is the episode for me more than any other that really expands my mind about how language can be used and how trying to understand a really difficult usage of language can lead to positive communication and and relations. So, I mean, of course, in the episode, they can understand the words that these Temerians are saying, but the way that it's constructed together, they have no idea what it actually means, even though, like, through the Universal Translator, they're, you know, Federation standard words. So what I wanted to do, because Memory Alpha has it here, is just read some examples of the Temerian language, um, because I think what they come up with, where it's based on like allegory and stories, is just so super interesting. So I'll kind of go over what what it has here. Uh, I think it's in alphabetical order, but <laughs> different things that are talked about in the episode. So the Beast at Tanagra, Children of Tama, Chenza at Court, the Court of Silence. Darmok and Jalad at Tanagra, Darmok and Jalad on the ocean, Darmok on the ocean, Picard and Dathan at Eladrel, Kadir beneath Momete, Kailash when it rises, Kiazi's children their faces wet, Kira at Bashi, Kateo his eyes closed, Mirab with sails unfurled, Ryan Jiri at Lunga, Rai of Lawani, Lawani under two moons, Jiri of Ubaya, Ubaya at the crossroads, at Lunga, Lunga her sky gray, the river to mark in winter, Shaka when the walls fell, Sokath his eyes opened, Temba at rest, <laughs> Temba his arms open, Uzani his army with fists closed, Uzani his army with fists open, Zima at Anzo, Zima and Bakor, Zinda his face black, his eyes red. So I think that's most of what, of the Temerian that's spoken in the in the show. And it's just interesting to like hear those things and not have the context. I mean, there's certain ones we know, right? We know what 
Darmok and Gelada Tanagra means. We know what, you know, Picard and Dathan Adela Drill, Shaka when the walls fell. But there's a lot of the other ones where it's like, what did they mean by that? And there's some interpretations on Memory Alpha, but but I just love like hearing it. And in the episode, when you hear someone speaking these kind of allegorical words and these stories that are behind it, I think there's something very beautiful and very like interesting about it and elegant about it, even if at the beginning of the episode, we have no idea what they're saying. So that had to be my third pick. What do you guys think? Justin, his story's awakening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't know there was half as much as what you just said there. Because um, obviously all that isn't an episode that's been added to. Is that right? No, all of this all of this is, is in the it? episode in different places. Yeah. Oh, okay, wow. Oops. I mean, especially toward the beginning, because when they're having the back and forth, there's a lot of Tamarian that they're that they're speaking. But but yeah, uh, okay. th- those are things that are actually from the episode. There's a couple variations even that I didn't didn't read. There are a couple word variations, but but that's all in the episode. And it's really interesting. You don't have to understand to get the gist of what's been said. Really, you get you quickly become familiar with what the the, um, the Tamarian captains trying to get at without understanding the meaning of the individual Eventually, phrases. but I think the first time you really don't. Yeah, interesting. It's, like, I read an article earlier, or like sped read it, that um, said that a language like that would not work. Oh, they've, they've done some work on that in the books. You want to hear what the solution oh, yes. is? Who knew there was a book? <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> Go for it. Well, yeah, so I think they're... There could be issues with it because it's referencing things that have to otherwise be told in more of the prose that that we're used to. But I think that that the idea. Oh, now I'm trying to remember how it how it goes about. Well, first of all, there there is actually a separate like scientific language that they have because you couldn't really do science with that kind of language. So apparently, like for science and some other things, there's kind of like a separate language that they have. But when they're conversing with with each other, the idea is that when the the kids are growing up, the parents are are kind of teaching them these things, and they are, you know, in in some way through other means, telling their children like what these stories really mean, like acting it out or, or something like that or some other means so that they know what those things like actually mean. But that they, again, do have a different language for other things where just talking an allegory like when you're doing science, <laughs> it wouldn't really be helpful. So, so it's like conversational Tamarian. Yeah. It's not what like Google Translate would give you, which is like proper Tamarian. Like yeah, it would be from like a textbook or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I mean, maybe you could think of it that way, but but like, I mean, regardless of the potential issues, I think the idea that people could think about communicating in such a different way is was one that just like opened my mind because you know we think about we're we're on Earth and we have all of these different languages that that to a large extent really go like back toward the same roots like many thousands of years ago. Um, but if you're talking about beings that are on other worlds that wouldn't have the common roots, it's kind of surprising in Star Trek that it's so often you can kind of understand the syntax because you'd think there would be languages out there that would be so incredibly alien to try to understand and they have different ways of thinking about things and different values and different historical experiences and, and, and whatnot that would lead to something that would be really different. I guess you could say in the in the chase that because there's this common origin among these humanoid species, but 
even the ones that don't have that common origin and even if you do like how language would be implanted in your DNA doesn't really make any sense but but yeah like I think what we usually see in Star Trek outside of Darmok is is far more understandable than it seems like it should be right right I think that's just a function of it working for for the audience right otherwise we would just spend half the episodes trying to interpret the other aliens right yeah, but but there there are other examples like an Enterprise's silent enemy. Like they don't really get to communicate with that species at all. Like they have no idea what's going on, why they're being attacked. There's like no communication, maybe because it uh, it's just not understandable to them. So there's like a few. But you're right. For convenience, a lot of times to get the story going or get the point across, you have to assume that they kind of speak in the same way and think about things kind of in the same way and that you can like actually translate between the two. Yeah. And then I guess that's, that's, that's where the UT is such a important invention in the world of Star Trek, right? Universal translator. Uh, this was something I was obviously thinking of using from one of my picks, but it's so obvious. So I thought, you know, just delve into the, into the episodes and find some different examples. Yeah. I, I usually leave the obvious ones for the end, seeing if anyone else chooses them, and then I'll put them in. Because if we didn't talk about Dharma, it would be it would be, yeah, be a missed opportunity. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. So I don't think the Universal Translator will ever exist. In what way do you, or in what way are you saying that? Are you just talking about, or like even on for Earth languages, or just for other ones that? Oh no, Earth language is easy because we have the. We have knowledge of the the syntax and the grammar and how okay. the languages are constructed. So, like Google Translate does it relatively well, um, and you get more instantaneous versions where you just speak into it and it directly translates it. But in terms of alien languages, it depends on what you think aliens, how they might be constructed and have evolved. Um, there's kind of theories out there about if aliens evolved on kind of earth-like planets then they would have the same roughly the same elements available um and so the or biological and organic matter would be formed from the same things so evolution might be similar however i'm thinking about like birds you've heard um like birds of paradise and the or birds in general um have two bronchial passages so they can make multiple tones at the same time which is something we can't do so i'm thinking if birds were to have evolved to become kind of intelligent and technological then their speech patterns would be wildly different so i don't see that we could have a machine that just naturally understands an alien language without understanding the rules of that language yeah well and and i think the idea when they do explain it is like the universal translator is really good at just constructing the rules of their language based on just hearing a little bit but that does seem like it would be really difficult Mm. i think it would be much more likely that something something would happen you know like like has happened before when people meet and they don't know each other's language they would start trying to communicate by like maybe gesturing to certain things and saying like this is rock and you know all this stuff to try to get there and that has happened um you know in the past when different cultures have met so i would think that kind of thing would happen there would be someone or some people that would learn that alien's language and the alien might learn our language or whichever language that they're encountering and then from there then you can be able to put in the information into a universal translator to use it going forward i think that's more likely right I was thinking like even a language in itself, we always, um, it's all a matter of perspective, right? We're fortunate as human beings, we have this, we have a uh, similar perspective and matter of perception. 
So the way we see the world is very similar. Like if I see red, 99% of my fellow humans are going to see red. Yeah. And we can say, okay, we can say definitively this color is red. This one's blue. This one's green. And then we can start to create categories and differentiate things and, you know, go about our business and talk about stuff and communicate. But if you're talking about alien races, you don't know if they can perceive things, if they even see, if they have eyes the way we do, because we have a very limited spectrum of light, which, which we can perceive ourselves, right? That's true. And I think that's kind of influenced by the light of the sun and what what uh, wavelengths that it comes in at. Maybe an alien is coming from a planet that's around a different star that has different uh, wavelengths of light that are that are being emitted as like visible light to them. And so maybe they would perceive color differently or their surroundings. Yeah. I mean, we just don't know, but I think it's likely that it would be different in some way. Right. Yeah. Or how we have like the animals with like the echo load, like the echolocation, something like that. You don't know if they can even perceive things in a physical form like that with eyes. Hmm. Yeah. Um, there's the thing about their perception of light on earth. Yes, just in like from the spectral type of the star, um, giving it various wavelengths, but also how much of that um, visible radiation is absorbed by the atmosphere changes mm-hmm. the light that you see. So it depends on your star, but also the atmosphere that you're in. And there's things, there's the weird species on Earth, like dogs see kind of differently. It's like a, I think it's almost like black and white with some little bits of color that dogs see and they don't have very good distance vision and then there's things that have evolved deep in the ocean where there is no light um but they've evolved to produce their own light and they've got very weird kind of compound eye like spiders and things have compound eyes so given the variety on earth there's going to be a huge variety elsewhere if somehow you could talk to those species maybe we wouldn't even understand what they would be saying because their experience and their perceptual organs are so different. <laughs> yeah. It's like um, Troy says in Darmok, it's like, I point, I point to this and you guys could think red, but I'm thinking t-shirt. Right. So that yeah. mis- we're all speaking English, but that simple miscommunication there has said something completely, completely different. Right. And then uh, even thinking about this topic, uh, I guess we want to go into our honorable mentions. But I had one small one. It was um, season three. It's episode two, uh, the essence of command uh, with the Sheliak. And when they're discussing the contract uh, negotiations and when they were building the contract. And I think that's the scene where Troy is talking to Picard saying, she, she just says a random phrase from, um, from Beta Z. And, she's, and she's, she has the cup in front of her of Earl Grey. And uh, Picard's like, you meant tea. And then she's like, no, maybe I meant the substance is black or the cup is glass and yes. so on and so forth. You don't know, right? Uh, it takes time for people to find the common threads of their the way they perceive things. And- That's right. Yeah. Well, all right. So since Shoab had an honorable mention, do you have one, Joe? The Big Goodbye, where um, there are, en route to the pl- the planet Gerada to do some diplomatic mission. And Picard has to basically learn the greeting. Oh, yeah. Um, which goes some like, Ar klaxonis blag blan arnikanik ar krasula rastra strasula. Kind of like that. 
Were you making that up, or were, was that in? It sounded sounded very close to it. I remember card saying from Chakote dot net, which has all the scripts. So oh, Chakote dot net. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, Chakote. Yeah. Chakote. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but no, that that that's from the yeah. Those that's where I get a lot of the uh, transcripts for the episodes. Yes. But that that's how it is in the transcript. That's very good, Joe. You have a real facility for these yeah. things. You're my, our universal translator. My linguist. Yep. <laughs> That's excellent. Nice. So let's see. For honorable mentions, yeah, there were some that I was thinking about and I was like, well, how much does that extend the topic? But actually, one of the things that I think about is um, the episode Elementary Dear Data, which is where basically it's the question of whether Moriarty is is sentient. Um, and, and I just kind of love the, the discussion there and that just opened my eyes to something because I was thinking, you know, watching TNG, like, all right, they're humans, they're different alien species. There's an Android. I can accept that, you know, all of those are, are sentient. Right. But then thinking about a hologram, like up to that point, it's like, Oh, it's just, you know, these projections and there's really nothing more to it or nothing more to consider. Then you get somebody like Moriarty who is in a way like upgraded by the computer towards sentience and it just opened my eyes like wow what if a hologram could be a sentient being and of course that gets picked up um you know later on with different instances like the the doctor voyager and things like that but but that was one of those moments where i was like wow i never would have thought of a hologram being sentient or whether that was a question or not but it really opened my eyes to that so that's something that kind of like expanded my mind around a concept the way they described it. I suppose you could argue that there is absolutely no difference between data and Moriarty in terms of substance. Yeah, they're both made of matter and they both have computer programming as intelligence. And so if data is sentient, then why why on earth can't Moriarty be? Well, I mean, if you can't leave the holodeck, I mean, it's... it. Yeah. I mean, is it like in the holodeck, it's like temporarily a form of matter that dissolves when you're outside of the holodeck? Or is it really just like energy and force fields? But the holodeck does use um, like kind of replicator technology to produce things like food. And that's why you don't go on for a fancy meal and then leave hungry. And to like the, the sheet of paper that Moriarty doodles on that leaves the holodeck. I mean, it must have replicated <laughs> yeah, that or yeah. something, right? I exactly. love that part. <laughs> Everyone's like, wait, why is it outside the holodeck? <laughs> That's why it just you know it it must replicate stuff and it must be the case for example like if you're eating on the holodeck that it's actually replicated the food and you're really eating that instead of like it disappearing from your digestive system when you leave <laughs> yeah. the holodeck right exactly. I mean that would be weird. It'd be great if you were on a diet though. You could go on and like absolutely stuff your face and have whatever whatever you wanted. Like I'm going to have five steaks and twenty seven donuts and then I'm going to kind of roll myself out the holodeck and it will disappear. Yeah, let's not let's not even think about the bathroom on the holodeck. I don't want to think about that. Oh, wow. um, <laughs> you have to assume that's when they use the the transporter, right? <laughs> goodbye. Oh, it wow. just it just beams out of you. Yeah, that's the big goodbye. <laughs> yeah. oh, wow. um, but but no, like but but seriously, like Star Trek has really opened my eyes to thinking about like androids and holograms and other forms of life being sentient. So that when and if we might encounter that somewhere in the future. As Star Trek fans, we have some kind of basis to think about it. And I think for a lot of other people, it'll be like, no, no, not really. We'll be like, well, but there were these characters that taught us this. So anyway, that was one of the things that opened my eyes. 
biological life is just a different type of computer, isn't it? I'm sure they've said it on Star Trek, but I actually believe Picard it. Picard says something like that in The Measure of Man. Like, we're also machines, but we're just like biochemical machines or something like yeah, that. Yeah, our, our computer programming is just DNA and genes and, and electrical impulses. And, that, and our circuitry is just the nerves that in our brain. There's kind of no difference. Yeah, it's just uh, it's just a change of molecules in our brains, right? Reconfiguring and yeah, exactly. yeah. Wow. Well, Shoab, this was a great topic that you brought to us about the power of words, language, and communication, and it led to all kinds of great different different places. So, thank you for bringing this topic. I love it when we get something, we make choices, and we end up talking about things that we never would have expected. So, thank you for bringing that topic to us. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Yeah, and and let, before you go, let our listeners know where they can find you online. Of course, uh, you can find me on, on on the Babel Conference. I'm often there um, posting or just at least reading everyone's comments. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. My handle is at SchwabAM. Uh, it's my first name, S-H-O-A-I-B-A-M. Uh, yeah, I'm on there. You can follow me, uh, hit me up on there. I'm, I love talking, chatting about everything. Okay, excellent. Well, thanks again for coming back to Earl Grey for your second appearance. Thank you. I, uh, it's been great. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Justin. Thank you, Shorab. It was really good to to meet you today. Yeah, it was, that was good really to fun. talk to you too. I I think there's something in Earl Grey episodes. I have more fun when we have no time to research. Really? When it's like the villains episode just was very natural and conversational. And this episode was just it flowed and I thought we started fifteen minutes ago, but we've been talking for an hour and a half. Yeah, I, I feel yeah. the same way. And that well, and that's something listeners don't know. So uh so we had something that that uh, that didn't work out, and I know that Shoab, you had some um, some ideas. So we decided to to bring you on, and basically we've been thinking about this topic for um, about twenty four hours. So, yeah. <laughs> can we make a rule in future where we don't get time to organize, and we just because I perform better when I've like see if you message me like half an hour before we start to record and say, Joe, today we're talking about, and I'm like. <laughs> <laughs> But but that doesn't work for the episode for for the ones where you have to watch episodes. True, yeah, that's, I can't that's, that's true. Yeah, of course. But 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 maybe for this type of concept uh, talk discussion, it maybe works good too. Yeah, for me especially. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. Thanks again, Shab. We really appreciate you being here. All right. Thank you. Until next time. All right. Well, a preview of next week's episode. So next week, we're going to bring you an interview, and that is with Clyde Kusatsu, who played Admiral Nakamura on several episodes of TNG. So are you excited about that, Joe? It's your first time you'll be interviewing someone on Earl Grey. I'm vaguely terrified. Uh, You'll do fine. I know, but it's fine. I'm sure he's a lovely guy. He was at STLV this year, wasn't he? Yeah, that's where I met him. He was he was super nice, and I just went up to him and, and talked with him a little bit and said, hey, would you like to be on Earl Grey? And he was like, I'd love to. That's <laughs> so, right. The, the day you got there, you like networked like a demon, didn't you? And got everybody well, to come on. Let's not, prom- let's not promise anything else, because <laughs> but I did try to get other interviews, and we'll see what happens with that. That's but. cool. Looking forward to it. That's going to be fun. Have Admiral Nakamura himself, which is cool. First, no, we have interviewed someone else who played an admiral. There was a interview that we did with Natalia Nagulich who played Admiral Nechev a while back. Oh, wow. But still, That'd be cool. very cool. Nice. Yeah. 
All right. Well, it's been so much fun talking about the power of words, language, and communication in TNG today, but that isn't the only thing we've been talking about here on the network. Here's what you might have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. Wait, so what switched between your two lists? Calypso comes in, Runaway comes in second oh, of right, importance. Right. Okay. But Calypso comes in second in enhancement of the season. Okay. I see and really, even there. importance, I could probably, in my head, flip Calypso and Runaway because I don't mm-hmm. need Runaway. Literary Treks. I, I find that the characters don't quite look like they're actors. You're right. And I think that's because I'm, I started to see something, little flashes in both Pike's face and in number one's face. Is this a representation? And maybe this is totally me reading in way too deep, but is Pike kind of our John F. Kennedy? In the sense that Jeffrey Hunter died tragically, Pike Pike's story ended quite tragically as the first pilot, and I think we've been sort of trying to sort of what if him, right? And I think a lot of people what if the death and loss of Kennedy in the 1960s as well, which I think also has a lot to do with the hopeful nature of why Star Trek TOS was the way it was, right? Earl Grey. Imagine imagine if aliens came to uh, STLV or something like that and said, hey, we're making first contact. It'd be like, oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Oh, wow, that's an amazing cosplay. Great cosplay, exactly. <laughs> are, are your cosplays terrible? Yeah, <laughs> yeah you're like, you know what? You don't look Made like anybody China. who's been in Star Trek. What are you supposed to be? And introducing our newest show, The Line, a Star Trek Picard podcast. Al- alternative factor is better than Nemesis. Alternative factors. I know you'll say alternative factors better than a lot of things, and I'll disagree. <laughs> I, I'm going to abstain from an opinion there. <laughs> Good, I win. You guys don't fight me on that one. There you go. Oh. <laughs> right, an abstention's as good as a, a no, okay, or a yes. Um. <laughs> and that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favourite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad or Apple TV or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please leave us a star rating and written review that helps others to find the show. You read that very smoothly. I was really trying to get the words right. <laughs> Perfect. Well, if you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, YouTube, Windows Phone, and most third-party apps. And you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show. And there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook and it should come right up. I love the fact that we're talking about like communication and language and I've lost the ability to speak and form words. Ugh. What are you talking about? You did great. It's, that, it's through concerted effort. It's like if <laughs> I was a PC, my processors would be 100%. Well, Joe, you want a bonus question? <gasps> my absolute fate. <laughs> it's the only reason I podcast. Is it really? Yes. Oh, wow. So to keep you here, uh, so in your own life, tell us about the power that words, language, or communication have had. Oh, that's a good question. So the current version of me is very different to how I used to be in terms of 
um, my personality. Um, at school, I was like painfully shy. Um, well, I always say that I didn't have any friends until like I was like 16 because I just used to hang about with myself. Um, like I would get embarrassed if I had to talk to people. Um, and then obviously Star Trek taught me a lot about that um, growing up, but it wasn't enough to kind of overcome my just terror of having to kind of interact with people, um, whoever they were, teachers, other students. Family was fine because they're family. Um, and it, I kind of came out my shell and changed, got a new personality, a more updated version of myself when I went to university. And <laughs> Joe 2.0. Yeah, and I kind of became an adult. I kind of matured and went to university and you're in a position where you're on your own, so you have to kind of interact with people to get anything done. So, um, yeah, wasn't a great... Um, I'm, I'm going to sound like I hated my childhood. I didn't. I had a great time. I did lots of fun things, but I was just a very different person to him just now. And like me back then would not be podcasting or even think about doing anything like this. Wow. I mean, Joe, it's pretty much the same for me, actually. Um, when when I was a, a kid, I really didn't have many or any friends for, for a lot of the years. And I kind of kept to myself and uh, didn't get along with a lot of people. It was hard for me to... Actually, it's hard for me to talk to kids of my own age. I could talk to adults okay as a kid, okay. which is weird. But then, similarly, <laughs> like I went off to, to college. And actually, I had it in my mind like, nobody knows me there. It's a blank slate. I can just try to just hang out and be different. And it was great. And that started me like on the trajectory toward the person that podcasts now. I mean, it's it's weird, Joe. It's, it's like um, you had a, a very similar experience, even though you're in a different part of the world and all that so parallel evolution um it'd be, it's funny if we did kind of perhaps go to the same school at the same time and we were the same like we wouldn't naturally be friends because we'd both be that person that didn't like talking to the other person so we could literally <laughs> be standing beside each other and nobody says a word and then we go off and do our own thing oh interesting very interesting Let's move on. Let's move on from the sad tales of our childhood. <laughs> but it's happy now, happy time. Yeah, it's like therapy. Yeah. I'm going to cry myself to sleep tonight. Oh. oh, dear. Okay, Justin, please continue. Well, if you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Earl Grey. That will come right to us, and we might read your email on the show. So listeners, we haven't gotten as many emails lately. Send us an email with what you think about the show. So you can also find the network on Twitter at TrekFM and on Facebook at facebook.com slash TrekFM. So Joe, where can people find you when you're not speaking like a Temerian? Joe, his eyes open. Well, Temerian is my first language. English is difficult for me, um, obviously, because I only learned it recently. So yeah, if you want to maybe contact me and chat in Temerian, you can get me on Twitter at joeyjoe77uk. You can email me and I will guarantee you a personal response at joepodcasts at gmail.com. And I got a really nice email from a listener recently who said my impression of Admiral Nora Satie was hilarious and it was pretty <laughs> on point too. So thank you for that. You it can was also, pretty great. Yes. Uh, you can also get me on the Babel conference where I'm usually lurking around. 
And Justin, where can people contact you when you're not hanging out with Temba with your arms wide? <laughs> Trying to think of a response in Tamarian, but oh, it's not I know, happening. It's difficult. Uh, Dharma Kanjalata Tanagra. Uh, <laughs> well, you can find me. Oh, boy. You've thrown me off. Uh, so you can find me elsewhere on the network co-hosting The Line. That's our Star Trek Picard podcast. I co-host that with my friends Chrissy DeClerc-Zalagi and Brandon Shamatala. We have a great time talking about Picard and TNG and Voyager, I guess, and the run-up to everything for Star Trek Picard, where we will talk about those episodes shortly after they air, once they air next year in 2020. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at TrekFan4747, where I tweet about nothing but Star Trek. And you can find me hanging around the Babel Conference on Facebook. If you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive pr- content, producer credits and more, available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We'd like to take this opportunity to recognize our current associate producers, Norman Lau, Michael Huter, Thomas Appel, Chris Trebuzio, Jim McMahon, Joe Keegan, and me, Justin Ozer. Thank you for supporting Trek FM and especially Earl Grey. So join us next time for another cup of Earl Grey. Uchim Chefo Shaka when the walls fell. <laughs>